Well, welcome everyone. Hello there. Glad to see you. Don't tell Bill you did that, okay? <laughs> Thank you all for being here today in this worship time we have together here in our Coral Gables campus. And uh, we also know that at this point in time, there are several hundred of our friends, brothers and sisters who are worshiping in our Kindle campus. And there are thousands who will be worshiping with us throughout the week in our church online all around the globe. So thank you for being a part of one church in many locations. Uh, we are going to conclude a series today after the second week only because of the hurricane interruption. But we're going to be in concluding the series called Lies We Believe. And to tell you the truth, I'm going to try to do something that people tell us not to do. You know, people will say, don't talk about religion or politics. And today, I'm going to do both. Okay, but, but don't worry. My intention is not to try to make you into a Republican or a Democrat, or a Libertarian, or whatever else you might come up with. I probably am gonna be an equal opportunity offender today. <laughs> okay? I can step on toes on both sides of the aisle because I, I'm gonna explore the idea which I think is a lie that we believe. At least our actions seem to demonstrate that we believe that all of our human problems are political problems and would be solvable by all powerful human institutions of government. I believe that we should look at that as perhaps a lie that we believe. It was the fall of 1964. I was in the sixth grade at... Uh, Point Elementary School, Mrs. Burgess's class. Hair, I remember that. It was the first national election that I can remember, uh, presidential election. The presidential election between Lyndon Johnson and Barry Goldwater was about a month away. And so uh, in a kind of a learning uh, experience, Mrs. Burgess had a plan for us to have an election in our class to see who the president would be of our class. And of course, I had to run for that office. But I learned that in order to run for the office, I had to have a platform. I had to create, write, and deliver a campaign speech. To my utter shock and amazement, I lost that election <laughs> to my friend Keith Renner, whom I consider to be a lesser qualified candidate, frankly. <laughs> I, it was a close race, but I believe the tipping point came when in his campaign speech, he promised our class that if we elected him, he would get us longer recess and better food in the cafeteria. Now, I knew that he couldn't deliver on that promise. I believe our classmates knew that he couldn't deliver on that promise. I think he knew he couldn't deliver on that promise. But dang it, I wish I'd thought of that, <laughs> right? Because he won the election and I went home the loser. 
Starting with that election and to this day, I have learned that that's kind of the way elections work. We hear people make promises, things that we would like, even if we know that they probably can't deliver on those promises. And we get all stirred up about those promises. Uh, just for fun, I took a look back at some of the campaign promises, some of the campaign slogans that presidential candidates in the United States have used over the years. And so uh, here's one from that 1964 election between Barry Goldwater and Lyndon Johnson. Goldwater was the Republican candidate, and that's his speech on top or his can, uh, campaign slogan. In your heart, you know he's right. The Democrats came out with a button that said, in your guts, you know he's nuts. <laughs> So I guess this election we've just recently gone through isn't the first time that we've had this kind of hostility, right? Here are a few of the winners you might appreciate in American politics through the years. In 1860, in his first election, Abraham Lincoln, running for president, ran on the campaign vow to vote yourself a farm. In other words, he was trying to get the American West populated. He was literally saying to the American voters, if you will vote for me, I'll get you a farm. Pretty audacious. Uh, William McKinley, not quite as audacious, said to guarantee us a full dinner pail. Uh, you'll see Theodore Roosevelt promised a square deal and, and Warren Harding promised a return to normalcy, whatever normalcy might mean. That was after World War I. We'd like a return to normalcy after Hurricane Irma, wouldn't we? Dwight Eisenhower promised peace and prosperity, and Barack Obama in 2008 promised change we can believe in. And you will probably remember in 2016 that Donald Trump promised to make America great again. Am I just being cynical? Or do some of these presidential campaign promises sound a little bit like my buddy Keith Renner's promise of more recess and better food? I mean, it's one thing to make these audacious promises. It's quite another to actually fulfill them, isn't it? But boy, we do battle over these promises. We do battle over whether my candidate's promises are better than your candidate's promises. And, and we battle with each other. We, we, we criticize and evaluate and critique and pontificate over these campaign promises that our presidential campaigns offer us. We watch the news channels that most closely identify with my perspective. And we don't watch. We get mad about the other ones, don't we? We defriend people on social media when they continue to post Posts that disagree with my perspective. We battle with friends and family members over our political perspective and which one is right. Groups are formed around our various political persuasions. You know, we have the right and we have the left. And now we have the alt-right and the alt-left. And we have uh, Antifa, and we have uh, Black Lives Matter, and we have progressives, and we have moderates, and we have conservatives, and we have liberals, and on and on and on. We differ on economic issues, and we differ on social issues. We differ on immigration issues and trade issues. We, we differ on religious issues. Is it just me, or does it seem like common sense and common decency are not so 
common anymore. How in the world are we going to stop this not so civil war that we find ourselves in in our culture today? I want to pose to you the answer that Jesus gives to that question is that the answer is not in this world. Jesus says that there are in fact two kingdoms at work in the lives of people who follow him. He came, Jesus came, to establish God's kingdom on earth. Maybe you remember in the prayer that he taught his followers to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus was in his earthly ministry, he talked a lot about kingdom. But make no mistake about it, he was talking about God's kingdom. Sometimes he referred to it as the kingdom of God. Oftentimes he referred to it as the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes just the kingdom. But he was simply referring to it, make no mistake about this, as the kingdom in which God is in control. God is the king. But he also recognized that people are subject to an earthly kingdom, a governmental or a political kingdom, sometimes referred to as the kingdom of man. Now in the day when the New Testament was written, the uh, earthly kingdom was under the control of Rome, the Roman government. And make no mistake about this, Rome did not look kindly on other people coming along under their authority and saying they were the king of another kingdom. From that day to this day, we have seen that these kingdoms are in conflict. Conflict within the kingdom themselves, but even more so, conflict between the kingdoms. The two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Conflict that comes because, after all, a kingdom means that there is a king who is in charge and to whom we owe our ultimate allegiance. Do you think that Jesus was coming when he came to, to walk this earth? Was Jesus coming to overthrow the kingdom of Rome and replace it with his kingdom? Actually, we'll see that Jesus was, was remarkably indifferent to those who held political power. He gave civil authority its due, which ironically angered the religious leaders of his day. They, in fact, tried to catch him several times on these points about whether or not that we owe our allegiance to the kingdom of God or to the kingdom of Rome. Uh, one of those examples we're going to read here in just a moment uh, come in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, when some, uh, some religious leaders approached Jesus and asked him whether or not it was appropriate, was it right for them, religious people, to pay taxes to Caesar? So follow with me in, Rome, in Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 15. In this incident, it says, The Pharisees went out, these were the religious leaders, went out and laid plans to trap him in his words, to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And here's how they made their approach. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? 
Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and they went away. In this passage, and then throughout the rest of the Gospels, Jesus models for us both in word and in deed that if we follow him, we are indeed citizens of not one, but two kingdoms at the same time. And that there will be battles between these two kingdoms. And these battles continue to rage to today, don't they? I mean, this conflict brings up some questions in our current culture when we're trying to decide which kingdom has most influence in our lives. Questions like this, can the government legislate morality? Just quickly, yes, the government can and does legislate morality. It's against the law to kill somebody. The question behind that question is, who gets decide to decide what is moral? Does the government get to decide? Do the voters get to decide? Who gets to decide what morality will be legislated? Another question, what do we really mean by the separation of church and state? Another question, what should the government's role be in addressing issues like abortion and homosexuality and racism and sexism and the like? Another question, what should the church's role be in addressing issues like abortion and homosexuality and racism and sexism and the like? In our remaining time today, in an attempt to handle, get a handle on some of those Conflicts. I'd like to pose that we need to learn how to fight the battles that will really matter. To get there, I want to take a look at some of the differences, three differences between the two kingdoms and see if maybe that can help you identify which battles you'll engage in and how you will engage in those battles. So first, I want us to recognize that these two kingdoms Kingdom of God and the kingdom of man are different in purpose. In the kingdom of man, the purpose of government is to preserve order. To preserve order. The Apostle Paul, speaking in Scripture, writing about government, civil government at this point, recognized that civil government, civil authority is ordained by God. And listen to this verse, as God's servant an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Government is, you see, in one sense, God's response to the sinful nature of people themselves. The state, however, is not, cannot be the remedy for our sinful problem. Only a means to restrain it. By contrast, the kingdom of God, the kingdom Jesus came to establish, the church was instituted by God and given the purpose of proclaiming the good news of salvation. And we're here to do this. 
We are here to do this as we reflect the love and the justice and the righteousness of God's kingdom within our society. We as the church are here to live out the values of the kingdom of God in this world while resisting the ever-present temptation to try to usher in the kingdom of God through political means. But not only were the church and the state ordained to have a different purpose, they were each given a different perspective. Human government is established with the perspective that society must be changed in order to change people. In the politics of the kingdom of God, the perspective is the exact opposite. In the politics of God's kingdom, it is people who must be changed in order to change society. This is why and how the kingdom of God has had its most significant impact on the largest, most powerful kingdoms of man throughout history. In the 1800s, William Wilberforce, a committed Christian man, fought for over 50 years to end slavery in Great Britain prior to our civil war here to do the same. Archbishop Desmond Tutu fought to end apartheid from a spiritual perspective in South Africa for many years. Martin Luther King's fight for civil rights in the United States are just a few of the examples where, where men of God have taken the power of the gospel to make a difference in their society. Not by the power of the sword, but by the radical changes that come in the hearts and the souls of people one life at a time. Which brings us to the third difference between these two kingdoms. That is the source of power in these two kingdoms. The source of power for the kingdom of man, governmental power if you will, comes only from the power of coercion. Governmental power comes only from the power of co coercion. It's been said that there are only two reasons why we obey the laws of the land. One is that we fear the punishment. Or two, that we love God. The state can only legislate morality, can only legislate our behavior by passing laws and then enforcing those laws with with warnings and fines and imprisonment. In other words, coercion, the fear of punishment. But what about the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God's source of power? Although we often fail in this high calling, our most potent source of power in God's kingdom is the power of love, the love of God. Charles Colson in his book, God and Government. It was initially released back in the 1990s as Kingdoms in Conflict, later revised to God and Government, says this, and I quote, nothing distinguishes the kingdoms of man from the kingdom of God more than their diametrically opposed views of the exercise of power. One seeks to control people, the other to serve people. One promotes self, the other prostrate self. One seeks prestige and position. The other lifts up the lowly and despised. And so with these differences in mind, difference of purpose, difference of perspective, and difference of power, for those of us who are members of both 
of these kingdoms, how do we manage the kingdoms in conflict? What battles should we fight and how should we fight them? My earlier response to that question was that we need to learn to fight the battles that will really matter. So what are those battles and how will we fight them? Number one, I believe that scripture tells us we need to fight the battle of priority. The battle of priority. Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all this other stuff will be taken care of. That means that we fight the battles that help establish the kingdom of God as a first priority in our lives and in the right way, employing the power of love. I believe most of us need a little civics lesson in this kingdom of God kingdom. I believe we need some help. And so I'd like to give you two reading assignments to study up on the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, what that would look like if we were to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Number one, I want to encourage you to do a word search of the word kingdom in the gospel of Matthew. First book in the New Testament, I told you earlier, there are 54 references to kingdom in the book of Matthew. Read them in their context. Take a month if you need to. See the picture that these words, these pictures will paint of the kingdom of heaven. We need to know what it looks like. Let's start with God's word and see what the kingdom of God looks like in his word. Reading assignment number two, I want to encourage you to read the book, God and Government. You can get it on Amazon, of course. You can get it, I think, in most bookstores still by Charles Colson. I think you'll find it enlightening. I think you'll find it challenging from the perspective of a man, the author, who was engaged in a high level in both kingdoms, kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Battle number two. I believe that we need to learn how better to fight the battle of prayer. As Jesus was teaching his disciples about kingdom, he, he said, this is how you should pray. And then in what we call the model prayer, Jesus prays, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that we can win the battle of prayer as we, number one, pray for our spiritual leaders. I hope that you will pray for your pastors here at Christ Journey, and I hope that you will pray for spiritual leaders all around the globe, that we will exercise the power of love with integrity and resist the ever-present temptation to try to usher in the kingdom of God through political or coercive means. The Apostle Paul also tells us in the book of 1 Timothy that we are to pray, number two here, pray for our governmental leaders, our governmental authorities. We do that, Paul says, so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. Kind of the opposite of what it feels like today, doesn't it? If we were to pray for our governmental leaders so that we might lead peaceful and quiet lives and because it pleases God, our Savior. Then the final battle that we fight, I think, that will really matter is the battle of position. 
the battle of position. This might be the toughest one for a lot of us because it's the battle that we fight in our own hearts and minds. When we really want somebody to know our position on one of these political discussions. I mean, we know that everybody is entitled to their opinion, right? And in the age of social media, I think all of you are entitled to my opinion. Is that right? We think that, don't we? The Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. So let me pose a couple of guidelines for your battle of position. Number one, I hope that you will learn and we will learn together to ask questions instead of making assertions. Questions like, well, tell me about your position. Why do you think that? How long have you thought that? How did you come to that position? If you ask questions like that with a sincere heart of love and a sincere desire to listen, not just to give me a chance to speak, but a sincere desire to love and to listen, that would keep that conversation going and the relationship going. And really, you're not likely to argue somebody into your political persuasion anyway, are you? They'll just defriend you. Number two, in this battle of position, I hope that you won't do anything that will jeopardize your kingdom influence, your kingdom of God influence. When you engage in a heated political uh, conversation with someone, whether in person or online, you should realize that you have jumped into a lesser kingdom conversation that will likely risk ending future kingdom of God conversations. Do you need your opinion told so much that you're willing to risk somebody else's eternal salvation for it? Think about that. Paul would characterize that as selfish ambition or vain conceit then instead I want to challenge you to fight battles that will really matter. I saw this quote recently from a, actually a current politician in an effort to remain nonpartisan. I won't tell you who it is, but uh, as people living in two kingdoms, um, I'd like to ask what it might look like if we each took this approach to our not-so-civil war. Here's the quote. While much of America seems to be getting more and more divisive, I'm going to be holding doors for strangers. I'm going to be letting people cut in front of me in traffic. I think I just lost some of you there. <laughs> I'm going to be greeting all that I meet. I'm going to exercise patience with others and smile at strangers. I'll do this as often as I have the opportunity. I will not stand idly by and let children live in a world where unconditional love is invisible and being rude is acceptable. Join me in showing love and respect to others. Find your way 
to swing the pendulum in the direction of love because today, sadly, hate is gaining ground. Love must begin somewhere and love will overcome that hate. Imagine the difference if we each purposefully loved a little more. I say let's make that our campaign. Let's make that our campaign promise to each other, to God, and to this world. Let's fight the battles that will really matter. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the power of the gospel, the power of love to really change people's lives. Help us not to give up the most significant power that, that we, the church, has in order to exchange it for a lesser power. Father, I am grateful for the country in which we live and for the freedom that we have. And I, I do pray for our civil authorities and pray that they would make good and right choices on our behalf. I, I pray for the kingdom of God that is in this place, right here, in this room, right here, our part of that, that we might be a kingdom of people who are driven by the power of love to make a difference in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our community. Uh, now I'd like to ask, and for, with your heads bowed still, for those of you that have never been a part of God's kingdom. Maybe today you've heard for the first time that there is a different kingdom with a different power and a different purpose. And so I'd like to offer you an opportunity to become a, a part of God's kingdom by praying a prayer with me. And so for the first time, perhaps in your life, you've never received Christ into your heart. Just where you are in the quietness of your heart, say this prayer with me. Father, I know that I have uh, not done well. I've made a mess of things in my own life. I've tried to do my life my own way. And so I confess to you now that I, I have broken the, the plan that you have for my life. I have sinned and fallen short of what you would want for me. And so Father, thank you for now coming into my life. I invite you into my heart to be my my boss, my king, the king in a new kingdom that I am becoming a part of. Thank you, Father, for responding to my need, for making it possible to be a part of a, of a kingdom of love where the power of love can make a difference in my own life and in my family and in my community. And I pray this in Jesus' name. So still with your heads bowed, if you've prayed that prayer with me just now, you'd like to let me know so that I can continue that prayer with you. Uh, would you just raise your hand so that I can pray with you and for you? Uh, wherever you're seated, I see your hand. Yes, I do. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. Thank you. God bless you. Father, I ask your blessing upon these hands that have been raised, upon the lives that are being changed because they are invited into your kingdom and they are responding today to be a part of a kingdom where the power of love overrules the power of law and that the law of this land, of this kingdom, is that we would love one another 
And by this, that all men would know that we are your followers, that we love one another, and that we love you and have placed you first as first priority. And we owe our, our allegiance and our worship only to you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.